This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. It's now my pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker and our feature for the evening. For anyone who loves Paris and who doesn't, literary history lingering indulgently in iconic European cafes, Noelle Riley Fitch needs no introduction. She has chronicled the lives of some of the most fascinating cultural icons, from culinary queens like Julia Child, to literary pioneers like Sylvia Beach, to bohemian cult figures like Anais Nin. She is an internationally acclaimed biographer and the author of Julia Child's only authorized biography, entitled Appetite for Life. Now, we all know, I suspect, about Julia's culinary training and her many, many accomplishments in the realm of French cooking. Noelle, however, delves behind that glittering surface to uncover the real woman, her thoughts, and her passions. In addition to her award-winning books, which have been translated into more than a dozen languages, Noelle has written broadly on topics such as European travel, literary life, and cultural history. Please join me in a big welcome for Noelle Riley Fitch. Bon appétit, everyone. Bon appétit. <laughs> That's Julia Child's signature exit line. <laughs> Signing off each of her t- about 250 WGBH programs as the French chef. And we know, I think, that Julia was not French, nor was she, did she ever claim to be, uh, she was not French and she never claimed to be a chef. It was her producer who chose the title because it fit into the narrow columns of the TV guide. (laughs) Julia Child was a TV personality. Um, Dick Cavett called her a media animal. And she was an assiduous, almost scientific researcher in matters culinary and a cultural icon who, in her very American way, led the long-overdue acceptance of women as a force in the patriarchal culinary world. U.S. News and World Report in 1997, when she was, I think, 85 years old, compared her pioneering work in the culinary world with the king... Elvis Presley, and the Queen, Alfred Kinsey. (laughs) I called my book uh, the only biography authorized by Julia herself, Appetite for Life, because I wanted to evoke her signature sign-off, thank you, Albert, and her voice and her zest for living which, uh, like few other people I have ever met, 
I experienced directly during the two decades of our acquaintance and then friendship. How rare and pleasurable it is, she said, she wrote to me, to remain friends with one's biographer after the book appears. (laughs) And our frequent visits to her at Casa Duringa in Montecito, her last home, uh, over the years really confirmed that friendship. I came to know Julia during the last two decades of her life as a dining companion, of course, <laughs> or should I say many courses. I wanted to write um, an historical biography, uh, not just a food book. And in a, in a way, then I knew her as... Um, in a documentary way, as well as as a uh, a friend, she was really a friend of my husband's. She loved men. <laughs> so at her at her insistence, I went through every drawer and cupboard and filing cabinet in her four story house, if you call the basement one floor. Uh, I read all of her letters and Paul's letters. I read their diaries. And then I interviewed about 600 of her family, friend, friends, and colleagues. I began my serious work about 1991 after having read my Sylvia Beach book about her beloved Paris. She agreed to give me exclusivity stating clearly that she was far too busy a woman to sit through any extensive interviews. Of course, she knew I'd never done any living subject, so she knew I knew how to do my research. (laughs) Nevertheless, I visited often in her Irving Street home in Cambridge, where she cooked uh, working lunches. For us, and she joined me and my husband, whatever city we happened to to be in. Uh, coincidentally, well, she loved to sit with him because he spoke French to her. Um, so we met for many uh, restaurant outings, of which more uh, in a moment. I had a sort of symbiotic relationship with her life for eight years, as any biographer would tell you. I mean, I was her designated and exclusive biographer, which meant that I had to try to empathize with her, to get inside her skin on the one hand, and on the other hand, to remain um, an objective biographer, historian, psychologist, novelist, sleuth, all those roles that biographers play. Um, It's much more... It's a, it's a balance that biographers always deal with, but it's much keener when you know the person that you're writing about, that you're, in, you're probing. <laughs> um, so I had to let all that information that I gathered um, sort of steep like a tea bag, um, or more, more appropriately, like an olive in a martini, (laughs) 
inside my mind. And to treat her as, uh, to, to, to treat this book, this project, as a literary historical biography, much as I would write about Teddy Roosevelt or Amelia Earhart. So I pose the question continually, um, why did Julia matter? And how much did she matter? And how was she shaped by historical events? And how did she in turn shape the era and history that she lived through? Her her affiliation with WGBH, PBS, Boston, her uh, gift, initially her gift of papers to Radcliffe College Library and her honorary degree from Harvard, long marked her as a New England Yankee. But my book attempts to correct this major distortion of the real Julia, who was born in Pasadena in August 1912, amid orange groves, uh, big blue sky, and sun. Her privileged upbringing with country clubs, and that's plural, they belonged in those days to several country clubs, Um, sports, she skied Tahoe, she swam in their summer home in Saint-Malo, north of here, Um, her private girls' school, they all made her a social animal. It gave her leadership skills. So did being six feet two inches tall. She was a ringleader, life of the party, initiator of pranks, full steam ahead, let's have another adventure. In short, well, she was six two. Um, a California girl, freckle-faced, enthusiastic, optimistic, democratic, with a small d, and later a large d. Um, energetic, our hometown girl, Julia McWilliams, whose life after a good education at Smith College, her mother's alma mater in Northampton, Massachusetts, would follow a predictable pattern. But World War II interrupted. Her country club coterie had volunteered for service. Most of the guys went in the Navy. And Julia signed up with the OSS. She just flew on her own to Washington and got the best job she could. So she was working for the OSS, the our secret our first secret intelligence service at the time. It didn't morph into the CIA until after the war. And then she volunteered for service overseas. She thought that would be a great adventure. Julia wasn't a spy for the OSS, but she was head of registry. She was, as she liked to to, uh, downplay it, Um, she was a file clerk which made her privy to all the information that went back and forth from the field to uh, Washington. But what's important is she learned other skills. She learned to be organized. If you're a file clerk, you need that. (laughs) Rational 
and disciplined, all the traits that would enable her later to research into culinary techniques that made mastering the art of French cooking uh, real science. And she was posted to Ceylon, Sri Lanka, where she met the love of her life, Paul Child, who was 10 years her senior, probably a foot shorter, who was to become her skillful mentor in matters of sex and food. Toward the end of the Asian conflict, they were transferred to China, where restaurants began, where we got one of the great culinary uh, cuisines. There, the OSS colleagues, as they had been in India, were very well-educated. Many had advanced degrees and had been professors. Um, They were also well-traveled. And so they would seek out the family dining restaurants, I guess they would have called them, in the countryside. And they would talk about the food that they were eating and about how it was prepared, um, the great meals they'd already had, the last time they were in Paris, what they ate. And Joey had never been around people like this before. This was a new experience um, to talk about food, how food was prepared. She was always hungry. You can imagine at 6'2". But she never really cared about how the food got on the plate, just that there was lots of it. In fact, her only food memories for me, when she was talking to me, were the deep-fried codfish balls smothered in egg glop that her mother made on Sunday mornings when the cook was off. And she remembers the jelly donuts that she bought across the street uh, from her dorm at Smith College. Back home, while Julia was being excited by the idea of food and a new kind of food, her country was being commercialized by Heinz, Borden, Armour, and Swift. They were stuffing and gelatinizing each dish. And a lot of us in the room remember this. It was called the golden age of food processing. The golden age of American chemistry. See, we sort of worshipped science then. And it just happened that women were trying to get out of the house at that very time. So thanks to technology, what was advertised, what was popular, were things like um, heat and serve, jiffy mix, the 10-minute meal, quick and easy, the Canover cookbook, that's the cookbook that sold more than, than any other. It was written by Poppy Cannon, who was um, the editor of House Beautiful and then Ladies' Home Journal, or as Ezra Pound liked to call it, call it Ladies' Home Urinal. <laughs> and she appeared on CBS every week. Um, she's been called, rightfully so, the queen of molded jello frozen food and canned soup. But Paul was interested in food. 
and Julia in Paul. So her work in Kunming, China really awakened her taste buds and her desires. The storms of war aroused her also her really gutsy endurance. They were surviving leeches and dysentery and a plague that saw hundreds of bodies floating down the river. It was right at the end of the war. Um, Julia's attitude was always, push on ahead. What do we do tomorrow? Um, Live now. For her, carpe diem meant seize the day, not the fish of the day. That fish was old solo mio. <laughs> it was providential that Paul's post-war posting was to Paris. So Julie had her first real French meal in Rouen on their way to Paris. It was November 1948, a meal she said that she told me it made her hysterical for a month. You know, oysters on the half shell, a, bo- a chilled bottle of, of Pouille Fusée and... Solmonier and buttered with hot Normandy butter and a green salad, creme fraiche, coffee. I mean, Paul was familiar with that, what we call the French dining experience. Julia could barely cook. She tried to take lessons, but she depended on house beautiful recipes. But this was Paris, so for Paul, she needed to learn to cook, and to perfect her schoolgirl French, the language of gastronomy. So she enrolled in that center of French patriarchal cookery, the Cordon Bleu School, where she slowly and painfully, amid much sexist derision, learned the codified rules of historical cuisine. Gradually, Her omelets stopped running and took shape. Her bernets did not congeal. Her butter did not blacken. And Paul was happy. And Julia was on her way to discovering her true vocation. So at 38, she discovered France and its cuisine. At 49, she published her Mastering the Art of French Cooking. It was a slow and arduous 10 years in collaboration with two French women. Typing, even when Paul was transferred to Marseille and then Bonn and then Oslo. She she kept this research, experimentation, typing uh, going. It was a long, long process. But that book... And her TV program, which came out of just an interview about the book in Boston at WGVH, really were transformative. This was, what was going on in this country at the same time, was the Betty Friedan feminine mystique period, which I was all for, of course. The throw the marshmallows in the jello and get out of the kitchen era. The men can cook, but only beside the the barbecue stove in the backyard era. So 
her book really was, and the reason it was turned down by so many publishers, it was just contrary to what was going on at the time. So it was truly revolutionary that it caught, that it caught on. And I think the pursuit of pleasure and good food was real, a hard sell in um, this puritanical society. But it, it really helped that our teacher was amusing. She was very funny. And also she was non-threatening. I mean, here's our Dionysian spirit housed in the body of a woman that looks like our high school gym teacher. <laughs> Her French chef program slowly spread across the country, and her fame grew. Um, and three national magazines put her on the cover. The symbol of gustatory pleasure, that was Newsweek. Our Lady of the Ladle, <laughs> Time. She invented modern life, U.S. News and World Report. But historically speaking, she really was revolutionary. She led a revolution in the way we cook and we grow and cook and think about food. And that last one is, I think, the important factor. Mastering the Art of French Cooking and Julia's The French Chef came out at just the right time, Thinking, speaking of the historical context. One... Um, the Kennedys' Francophile Camelot made everything French, respectively, chic. It was Julia that made it accessible. Um, second, the growth of television, especially PBS and the cult of TV celebrity culture. It allowed Julia to become a household name. Uh, Ch Chuck Williams told me that every day, the day after a Julia Child program appeared on TV that Williams-Sonoma would sell out any instrument that she used in her preparation. And finally, I think it was the, the unprecedented prosperity that led to the marketplace responsiveness to her calls for quality and integrity of produce. And above all, our call to her obvious enjoyment of the pleasures of the table. Our attitude toward cooking and eating that has changed. We now know that food and cooking are essential in the study of history and culture. Harvard, Harvard acknowledged this revolution when it gave her the honorary doctorate. Students were wildly happy about that. A 1996 Emmy was followed by the French Legion of Honor, in 2000, to dine with Julia, as my husband and I did so frequently, was to talk politics. She had very strong opinions, and there was a lot of humor. She liked dirty jokes. Um, and uh, we also learned to the extent to which her TV persona had become her real self. One night, um, we settled at a table at Lydia Shire's um, 
Four Seasons in Boston, and the eager young waiter approached with a small plate in hand, ready for his moment on the stage with Julia, and he said, he announced proudly that the square yellow item on the plate was butter and that the triangular yellow item was margarine. And... uh, His first line delivered, he began to exit stage right, and Julia called out, Young man, please remove the margarine from the table. (laughs) I want to encapsulate as fast as I can uh, the philosophy of of our First Lady of the American Kitchen and Table, as Greg Claiborne called her. One, cooking and eating are fun, a source of health and pleasure, and by gum, pleasure is your inalienable right. Don't be afraid of any food, especially fat. (laughs) And now studies are telling us the same thing. Eat in moderation. Eat all good, nutritious food in moderation. Four, cooking is an art just like painting and ballet and music, and it should be taken seriously and taught in our universities. Five, cooking is a career, but it's accessible to anyone, men, women, and children, who seek its pleasures and rewards. And six, cooking and dining, this is very important to her, cooking and dining, food and wine, are communal rituals that convey love and harmony and bring happiness. So we cook together and we dine together, as we did this evening. I'll end on that note with a poem by Paul that illustrates the association of love, passion, and food. Here is the poem. Julia, Julia, cook and nifty wench, whose unsurpassed canals and hot souffles, whose English, Norse, and German, and whose French are all beyond my piteous powers to praise, whose sweetly rounded bottom and whose legs, whose gracious face, whose nature temperate, are only equaled by her scrambled eggs. (laughs) Except for me, your ever-loving mate, this acclamation shaped in fourteen lines, whose inner truth belies its outer sight. For never were there foods, nor were there wines, whose flavor equals yours for sheer delight. O luscious dish! Oh, gustatory pleasure, you satisfy my taste buds beyond measure. (laughs) Thank you.